Welcome to DC Schmooze with OU Advocacy. We're getting to know some of our nation's elected leaders and learning about their policy goals. Join us as we dive in. Hello, this is Nathan Diamond, Executive Director of the Orthodox Union Advocacy Center, and welcome to another episode of the DC Schmooze. I am here today with Barak Ravid, uh, a longtime journalist in Israel, uh, currently a Middle East correspondent for Axios, the Washington political and policy uh, news source. Uh, and Barak is soon relocating, actually, to Washington, D.C., uh, to cover foreign policy more broadly for Axios. Uh, he recently uh, had uh, his book, uh, trans which was published several months ago uh, in Ivrit, translated into English and now published in English. It's called Trump's Peace. The Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East. Um, and I'm pleased to welcome Barack Ravid onto the Schmooze. Welcome. Shalom. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. It's uh, truly great being here. Uh, thanks so much for taking some time. Um, I'd actually like to start off uh, where your book ends. You, When you wrote the book, you did not, I think, have a section on President Biden because he hadn't uh, come in or he had just come in. Um, and you added on very helpfully uh, a few chapters at the end for the English translation um, about Biden. Um, and we're in the middle of a lot of things going on with regard to the Biden administration in Israel. So maybe we can uh, start there and then go back in time. Sure. Um, sure. So, you know, if I had to shorthand where we are from my perspective in the Biden administration's relations with Israel, um, I think I would hit like three points. One is they came in saying they wanted to restart a nuclear deal with Iran, but that has not happened. Yeah. Uh, right. To say the least. Uh, that has not happened. Uh, um, they said they want to, to build on and expand the Abraham Accords. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about that, but that has not yet happened. Uh, and in fact, just this week, uh, there were two members of Congress, Republican Mike Lawler and Democrat Richie Torres, who introduced legislation to establish uh, a, a specific person at the State Department to be the special envoy for the Abraham Accords. And maybe that's a sign that uh, it not much has happened. Um, and then thirdly, there's been some back and forth with uh, the president and American officials with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his government over the judicial reform. And that's been uh, a little bit bumpier, maybe, than than the first two things. Um, um, but uh, maybe you can, maybe from your perspective and your in-depth reporting, where, where do you see us uh, on those three points? Um, and is there something maybe that I didn't mention that I really, that we really should focus on in terms of what's shaping the relationships right now between the American and Israeli governments? Uh, well, you know, let's start with the last point you mentioned about the judicial reform because I think it's it's actually connected. Because when Biden uh, assumed office, uh, um, it was still Prime Minister Netanyahu. A few months later, you know, we had our elections. It was Prime Minister Bennett. No, no, no. When Biden oh. started, it was Prime Minister Netanyahu. Oh, you're right. I apologize. It was Prime Minister Netanyahu. Then we had our elections, and uh, Netanyahu left office. There was Prime Minister Bennett. Then, shortly before Biden visited uh, Israel, we had 
<laughs> another government fell. And then we had um, the acting prime minister, Yair Lapid. A few months later, once again, Netanyahu is the prime minister. So in a nutshell, uh, Joe Biden, who is a, you know, has a long record on Israel. He knows everybody here. He knows the issues. But I think that um, what he saw just in the, those two years, those two first two years in office, is how much the Israeli political system is dysfunctional, um, how destabilized it has become. And I think when Netanyahu came back to office, one of the things that I know that Biden and his people said is, you know what, maybe at least now there'll be some stability. So we want to use that in order not to, we don't want to go back again to, you know, fighting over over things. We want to try and, uh, you know, build this path of finding a positive agenda. And they said our positive agenda is, first, obviously, the Abraham Accords trying to get uh, a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And second, working with Israel on Iran because, A, there's no nuclear deal. It doesn't seem that there's going to be anytime soon. And the Iranians are cooperating with Russia in Ukraine. So in a way, the, 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 the field was really, you know, set in a very positive way for doing great things together. But then, in the first week of January, a few days after Netanyahu assumed office, the Israeli government uh, launched its uh, judicial reform. And in a way, this judicial reform um, not only hijacked Prime Minister Netanyahu's own agenda, the one that he uh, announced in his inauguration speech, it also hijacked the, uh, all the plans that the White House had for the relationship. So I think that right now when we see that judicial reform is suspended, and at least my assessment is that it's not going to go back to the table in any major way in the next few months. And, you know, maybe if it's up to Netanyahu, maybe never. Okay? I think that brings us back to where we were four months ago. It's We wasted four months, but... You know, I think right now things are going back to dealing with those two things that the two countries need to do together. Uh, a peace deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, a joint strategy on how to counter Iran that is, you know, pretty close to getting a nuclear weapon. Um, so both countries actually can't waste any time on, you know, issues that are just a distraction from the real strategic and existential things that they should deal with, you know, and again, each of us have it, has its own, uh, um, you know, position and opinion about judicial reform, but I think that we can all agree that this is not the, let's say, number one priority right now for Israel. And we see it in the polls here in Israel when people are asked, what's the top priority? Uh, judicial reform is not in the first five. Um, and there are much more pressing issues that are of an existential nature, and judicial reform is not one of them. Uh, that, although it might be the number one priority for some of 
Netanyahu's coalition partners, definitely, who are essential, who are essential for him staying in power. So that's definitely that, that's the rock and the hard place that he's in. Definitely, I totally agree. But I think that um, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, we as as a journalist and who covers politics, I need to admit that sometimes we cover politics too much. <laughs> and because we cover politics too much, we, you know, we give more importance sometimes to mundane uh, s- statements that have nothing to do with reality. And when you look at reality, you see that nobody in the current Israeli government has anywhere to go. Um, all of the people in the current government have more power than they ever dreamt. So I think that, you know, we hear a lot of talk, a lot of noise. Nobody has a better alternative. And I mean, the people who are now in the coalition, neither of them ever has a uh, a better alternative. And Netanyahu knows it. And I think that after, uh, let's say, not the best beginning to his term, I think that he's starting to get his act together and also sending the message to his coalition partners that with all due respect, they're not uh, the prime minister and he's the one who has... 30 plus seats in the coalition and therefore he needs to be the one calling the shots and I think that we will see more and more of that in the coming weeks and months interesting okay so so then uh, 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 let's take the premise that uh, there's going to be more time and more energy to focus on uh, expanding the Abraham Accords and particularly uh, with 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 the with the top target so to speak being Saudi Arabia um, that's an interesting place to go back to uh, a lot of the story that you tell in your book. Uh, a lot of this came out in the Hebrew edition and is now maybe more accessible, uh, well, is more accessible to a broader audience in the English edition. Um, in that, uh, and, and, and the story, tell me if I'm saying this correctly in a sentence, right, that people might not be aware of or aware of to a limited degree is... Um, the Abraham Accords were, were were sort of born out of, uh, you could call it necessity, or you could even call it a, a little bit of a crisis in between uh, Netanyahu and his team and Trump and his team uh, in the context of President Trump uh, rolling out the, the uh, his his Mid East peace plan that Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz and Jason Greenblatt had developed. Um, if that's the headline, maybe you could fill in like the, uh, the opening paragraph yeah. that for, for people who are listening. Yeah. I think that, uh, what I learned when I worked on, on the book and I, I interviewed dozens of people who were involved and, on, and, and, you know, president Trump himself was spoke with twice and, and obviously Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz and, and, and Jason Greenblatt and many, many others. Um, and what I learned was, and I, and I was amazed is how, um, you know, we, at least I'm talking about myself, my sense about the relationship between Netanyahu and Trump and between the, the, the Israeli government and the Trump administration, that was very, very close, almost with no daylight. And when I worked on the book, I, I discovered how much daylight there was behind the scenes. Uh, and I mean, how much, how many differences and how many gaps and how many clashes there were behind the scenes, and the Abraham Accords were born out of one of those uh, clashes. 
because if you remember in May 2020, after three or three uh, election campaigns, one after the other, finally there was a, a unity government in Israel between Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, and one of the um, main parts of the coalition agreement was the issue of um, uh, the possible annexation of parts of the West Bank. And Netanyahu put this sort of an artificial deadline on this thing for July 1st, 2020. Nobody knew why. Um, when B Benny Gantz told me that when he asked Yariv Levin, who uh, was then the Speaker of Knesset, why and was negotiating the deal, he asked him, why, do you, why, why July 1st? What's the, what's the story here? So he told him, you know, things that you don't do fast, you never do. Um, and uh, they try to do it very, very fast. But at the same time, Donald Trump and the Trump administration were, you know, it was COVID. There were 10,000 other things on their plate. An election was coming. And nobody in the White House had an appetite to go for a move that, you know, with the quite good chance of, you know, unraveling a lot of things in the region. They don't need this before an election. Um, so they, they were trying to, at the same time, uh, get Netanyahu off the tree of the annexation without getting into, um, you know, a public clash with him that might influence uh, politics in America. And Netanyahu also didn't want to clash with, uh, with Trump, but he was also sort of, you know, boxed in by his own uh, uh, campaign promises and, and coalition agreements. And from this point of both two trains that are, you know, uh, driving towards each other, and, and there's like, a, you can see this train wreck coming. Uh, at that point, on July 1st, uh, 2020, the day that Netanyahu set as the day for doing the annexation, obviously it didn't happen on July 1st, but at that day, the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates, Yusuf Elutayba, came with an idea to Avi Berkowitz and Jared Kushner and told them, you know what, what if, what if we normalize relations with Israel, full normalization, peace agreement, and Netanyahu drops the annexation. And at that moment, it was like really this almost magic solution that can prevent this clash between the Trump administration and Netanyahu, get everybody off the tree and create, you know, this new amazing breakthrough in Middle East peace. And, and I think that at first when Netanyahu was told about this idea on July 2nd, you know, at first he didn't know how to, you know, how to digest, you know, if he believes that it's serious or not. But then when he was convinced, there was a really dramatic period of like six weeks of negotiating on what's going to be the deal itself with like more than 115 drafts of the agreement. Um, and in those six weeks, it was so dramatic and nobody knew about it in real time. Nobody even knew. Everybody still thought in real time that annexation is coming. Uh, and then on August 13th, President Trump announced that instead of annexation, there's a historic uh, peace deal. And what I learned when I was writing the book is how many ups and downs were during those six weeks. For example, when 
Netanyahu, a day before the announcement of the Abraham Accords on August 12th, he sends Ron Dermer, who was then the ambassador to Washington, he sends them to the White House to basically tell Jared Kushner that, you know what, we decided we don't want it. And Kushner was shocked because everything was was ready. I mean, there was a, in the president's schedule, there was a phone call with Netanyahu and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. Everything was set. And then David Friedman, who was then the U.S. ambassador to Israel, was sent to basically tell Bibi, uh, you can't uh, <laughs> you can't backtrack now. That's uh, too late. The train has left the station. And it was such a dramatic moment that each of the people who were involved in that point in time remembers it <laughs> almost as a, you know, as a trauma. You know, that it was because it was this point that it could, everything could have unraveled and we would go from a historic peace deal to a historic farce. And um, eventually it didn't happen. Everything was okay. They announced the deal. But um, but I, I think that, again, we, we I discovered how many we did things we did not know in real time. And, and, and the story goes back even earlier than that late spring and summer, right? Because when uh, it was in January that, um, that President Trump at the White House with Prime Minister Netanyahu was announcing the Trump Middle East peace plan. Um, and that was, uh, you, you, you uh, narrate in your book how that was a moment which which laid the seeds for what you just described, right? Because there, yes. there uh, Netanyahu was still not only anticipating a a annexation, but he thought uh, that he had the green lights from the White House uh, on annexation. Um, and, uh, and in fact, uh, I remember I was there as, as, as you were and many others that day. After the ceremony, um, a number of us, uh, it was, I mean, almost immediately after the ceremony, a number of us had a meeting with Ambassador David Friedman in which um, he was laying out to Jewish some Jewish organizational representatives, and there were also um, uh, some evangelical representatives in the room. He was laying out, you know, what the next steps and what the points of this were, and um, and that was that was before the story that you tell of what happened over the course of the rest of the day. Because we the story we heard from Ambassador Friedman in the immediate aftermath of the ceremony was quite different from what transpired the rest of the day. Maybe you can tell our, our listeners yeah, a little well, bit more about how things played out uh, after that. Yeah, this was you know this was a crazy day, and you know in many in many rounds of Middle East peace talks or, or peace plans or whatever. There's always those points that people have um, contradicting narratives and that they will never agree on them to the rest of their lives. Right. It does. And, you know, it's it's the same people who were in the same time in the same place, but each of them has a completely contradictory narrative of what happened. And this is one of those cases. And, you know, for me personally, uh, January 28, 2020 was one of the worst days in my career <laughs> and I'll tell you why because I uh, the day before the night before I um, I get a call or I I spoke to somebody from the White House who basically said that they're not going to allow 
annexation right away. That it's not part of the plan. Maybe in the future they're not. They ha- they did they didn't have anything against it. But at this point in time, it's not part of the plan. I checked it with a few other sources. They all said, yes, that's the position. So the next day, two hours before the ceremony starts, in the briefing room at the White House, I, back then I worked for Channel 13 in Israel, and I I stood in front of the camera and published a story that the White House is uh, is against it. And then, as you said, right after the ceremony, David Friedman said, they can go and do it right away. Then I remember walking from the White House to the Blair House right across the street for a briefing with Netanyahu. And Netanyahu, in the briefing, said, we're going to do it on Sunday, which was it was then, I think it was a Tuesday. He said, we're going to do it on Sunday, something like that, in five days. Right. And then he pointed at me. He pointed at me and said... There's there's somebody here in the room that said, that published, that the White House is not allowing me to do it. I'm doing it on Sunday. This was fake news. And, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was shocked because, you know, I, my feeling was that, you know, my, the story I ran was not true. And for me, at least it was, you know, it was a, to run such a dramatic story at such a dramatic moment. And it's not true. I literally decided in my head that if this is really not true that the moment I come back to Israel I'm going to resign that 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 was my plan wow and then um a few hours later I was sitting with a friend of mine in um in um uh, Bistro de Croix it's a, it's a restaurant in DuPont and I was you know telling him how much I'm depressed and I'm I you know I don't know what to do and uh, and then all of a sudden, he gets like a push notification on his phone from a, an interview of Jared Kushner with CNN, with Christiana Manpour. And she asks him, she said, Prime Minister Netanyahu said that on Sunday he's going to announce annexation in the cabinet meeting. And Kushner says, I know nothing about any annexation in the near future, mm. which was, you know, completely contradictory. And then Two hours later, like it was almost midnight, I get a call from somebody from the White House telling me, listen, we know that you feel very, very bad and you think that you were wrong. You were not wrong. Wait till tomorrow morning. Next morning, David Friedman does a a conference call with uh, um, uh, reporters and basically walking back the whole thing, um, which obviously was a big relief for me. Because I will, I you know, I realized that the story I ran was true. Not 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 so happy. But, not so happy a moment for David Friedman, though. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I gotta I gotta say something again. One of the things I learned while researching for this book is that the 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 answer to the question of you know what really happened is very complicated. Meaning, I think that there were, I think that. Both Netanyahu and Friedman and Kushner think that their that how they saw the situation, how they read the situation is 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 the is the is the truth. And nobody, 
I don't think anybody is like lying here or anything. Was, I just think that was, it was, was trying to pull a fast one over the other people. They all thought they yeah. were all... Yeah. So I think I think it was it was really a, a, a big misunderstanding, which by the way, it's uh you know, it it, it doesn't have it, it shouldn't have been that way. I think it was a it wasn't like a, you know, a tornado that, you know, it's uh you know, from you know, force majeure, what can you do? Like I think it was a. They needed to to deal with that uh, uh, better. I'll give you an example. One of the things that Netanyahu asked for is a letter, exchange of letters with President Trump. In his letter, Netanyahu wrote that he's going to uh, do the annexation move within I can't remember in the next few weeks or next few days. Or so, I can't remember what was the exact, but there was a time frame, okay, which was very short. In the letter President Trump gave Netanyahu back, there was no reference to a time frame. So I think that in Netanyahu's head, he said, all right, I I gave a time frame. I did not get pushback. Okay. And is in, in the White House mind, they gave the letter back, but they did not mention a time frame. Right. So I think that it was, you know, this thing could have been handled uh, uh, better. But, you know, it was a super dramatic night on, you know, January 28th for, I think it was one of Netanyahu's worst nights as prime minister, it, and because especially you have to remember, this is a few weeks before an election. Right. And Netanyahu just agreed, Netanyahu just agreed to a map of a Palestinian state. And he promised his people, his voters, his supporters, that there's going to be annexation in return. And then he goes back to Israel with, with basically nothing. And not only with nothing, but with a crisis with the White House. And I think that the next few weeks until the Israeli election were the worst period in the relationship between the Trump administration and the Netanyahu government. A few days before the election, Ron Dermer comes to the White House to speak with, with Kushner. After a few weeks that they were out of touch with each other. And this meeting ends with Kushner throwing Dermer out of his office. This is how bad things were at that time. And when you think about it, from you know February, March 2020, when it was a really a real low in the relationship, to a few months later to get to a you know the height of the relationship between uh, Trump and Netanyahu with the you know with the Abraham Accords, it just shows you how you know how dramatic this period in time uh, uh was yeah and and not and dramatic and also you know uh it it, it would seem i think i think it seems to me and many observers uh, i don't know what your thoughts are they had had that miscommunication and that crisis not occurred <coughs> you might not have gotten to the abraham accords three or four months later in other words the abraham accords came as 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 a as a creative solution you know, to a problem that all these parties had and totally. and got totally. everybody off and got everybody off the hook, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, totally. in ways that might not have been necessary if, you know, either if obviously if Trump had got along with annexation, I mean, that would be a whole different scenario. But even if they hadn't sort of teed it up, um, you know, altogether, um, you might not have gotten the Abraham Accords. Totally. I totally agree. It was... Um... In a way, also, without Trump putting uh, the, his plan, laying out his peace plan, 
regardless of if you think it's a good plan, it's a bad plan, it doesn't matter. But without doing that step, okay, and without the Palestinians basically um, rejecting it out of hand, this process allowed a lot of Arab states that were waiting for him to lay down his plan, right. allowed him to say, well, you know, we we waited, we, we were we were willing to engage on the plan, even if we did not agree with any any uh, a paragraph in the plan, we, we, we were ready to engage. The Palestinians didn't want to engage. So, I mean, we can't like, we can't like just, you know, give a veto to the Palestinians over our national security uh, policy. Right. So, so I think this in was... Minutes, in a few minutes we have left, let's just go back to where we are now with, all, with this very, very helpful background. Um, so again, uh, you know, President Biden and his team have broadly said they they want they they're, they they applaud the Abraham Accords from the last administration. They want to build on them. They want to do the Saudi Arabia deal. Obviously, there have been some uh, there have been some challenges there, um, not only for the thing itself, but also because of bilateral relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Um, whether it's with regard to issues like oil production or with regard to Iran or, 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 or others. Um, where do you see, where do you see uh, we, we are right now uh, coming into, you know, late spring and summer of 2023? There's an American election off in the distance. Um, who knows about an Israeli election <laughs> when that might come around again? <laughs> But uh, I but, hope not. Yeah, I hope not. I think all Israelis hope not. Uh, but what? Where, where do you think we are? And what do you think are the one or two things that you'll be looking to see President Biden or Secretary Blinken do in, let's say, the next one, two or three months to really try to if they're really trying to push this, what do they need to be doing? OK, so first, let's let's go back to the <laughs> to the beginning of the Biden administration. You know, Biden was uh, very quick to endorse the Abraham Accords when he was just candidate uh, for president. Uh, he supported what Trump did. The Abraham Accords, I think, were the only thing Trump did that got Biden's support. And so when he came into office, he did not roll back any of the, of the tangible deliverables that the U.S. gave the countries that were involved in the Abraham Accords. And everyone were, you know, a lot of people were concerned that he might do that, like the Western Sahara to Morocco or the F-35 to the UAE or the aid package to Sudan. Nothing of that was rolled back when Biden came into office. And, but still, there was an issue of, for example, just using the term Abraham Accords, that the administration in the first six months or nine months didn't use its term. It used the term normalization agreements, normalization process, whatever you want to call them. And it was, you know, maybe a, a small thing, but it showed that still there was some, you know, they weren't all in on it. By the way, I I don't, I can understand them because the Israeli government, headed by Naftali Bennett, did almost the same thing because like Biden the Biden administration saw it as Trump's legacy. Bennett saw it as Netanyahu's legacy. And Bennett, in his first three months in office, did not use the term Abraham Accords. And it was one of Bennett's aides told me that 
even there was like a huge discussion of on whether to issue a statement on the first anniversary of the Abraham Accords. And, and you know, it, it took like a lot of some of Bennett's aides said that they shouldn't put out a statement. Eventually, he put out a statement. But, I mean, so it was an issue. But I think that in the first anniversary, this change for the Biden administration, it was as if somebody, you know, uh, turned on the light. Uh, and um, since then, I think the Biden administration is doing much more. It's trying to work on this issue. It tried to do, uh, it tried to press Indonesia uh, to go for some sort of a deal, Mauritania. Uh, um, it, I think, had a big achievement in when Biden came to the region. This uh, uh, agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia on the Red Sea Islands and the Saudi deliverable of allowing Israeli airlines to use Saudi airspace, this, this was a big deal. You know, we, in a way, after having, you know, peace agreements with uh, three and a half Arab countries, uh, so, you know, all of a sudden, when you don't get the full peace deal, you feel that it's meaningless. Okay, because we got so jaded about this thing, it's it's a good thing, you know. We but but still, you know, when you think about it, this deal with Saudi Arabia was a big deal, a big deal. Um, Saudi Arabia is the leader of the of the Arab world, the leader of the Sunni world. That's you know, it's a big deal, even if it's not a full agreement. But I think that right now, after more than two years in office, almost three years, I think the Biden administration, uh, you know, recalculates. Uh, its policy in the Middle East and its relations with Saudi Arabia. And I think uh, the White House sees um, a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia as a way not only to get normalization between those two countries, but as a way to reset Saudi-U.S. relations. And more importantly, I think, I mean, here in Israel, nobody even looks at it that way, but obviously in America, that's the number one issue. This is part of the big power competition with China. Uh, and the, the U.S., the White House believes that by doing such a deal, you basically send the message to China that the U.S. is still the, the biggest force in the Middle East, especially when it comes to Saudi Arabia and energy and, you know, the biggest economy in the region, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is what the White House wants to do. It's the number one goal in the Middle East for the next six months for for Biden. Uh, I think Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi Crown Prince, sends messages that he is willing to do it. Netanyahu obviously wants to do it, but for each of those leaders, there are pitfalls. For Biden, this means legitimizing Mohammed bin Salman, inviting him to the White House. You know, that's a big deal in an election year for Mohammed bin Salman, it's obviously normalizing with Israel. That's a big deal. And for Netanyahu, I think the big deal will be on two things. First, it's obvious to everybody that you can't uh, go for such a deal when Israel is destabilized domestically because of judicial reform. So I think that it's obvious that, you know, to do that, he needs to say goodbye to this idea. And second, there will have to be some sort of a Palestinian component in this deal, even if it's just a symbolic or small one. And I'm not sure that the current Israeli government is able to withstand such a thing, which means that maybe you will have you need to have some sort of a political change in Israel with a new uh, a coalition. 
So I think all when you take all of that together, we're looking at some pretty hectic six months in front of us when there is a real opportunity to do it, but this also has to do with a lot of political cost for the three different leaders. Right, right. Well, thank you. I think uh, we brought this conversation full circle, so I think that's a good place to conclude. Um, uh, again, the book by Barack Ravid is called Trump's Peace, the Abraham Accords and the Reshaping of the Middle East. It's available on Amazon. And uh, it, for those for those who tune into the OUDC Schmooze and have not already read it in Hebrew, uh, you can now read it in English if you wish. Um, Barak Ravid of Axios, uh, we really appreciate you uh, joining us here today. I'm Nathan Diamond, Executive Director of the OU Advocacy Center. Thank you very much.